Dogma and the Universe by C.S. Lewis It is a common reproach against Christianity that its dogmas are unchanging while human knowledge is in continual growth. Hence, to unbelievers, we seem to be always engaged in the hopeless task of trying to force the new knowledge into molds which it has outgrown. I think this feeling alienates the outsider much more than any particular discrepancies between this or that doctrine and this or that scientific theory. We may, as we say, get over dozens of isolated difficulties, but that does not alter his sense that the endeavor as a whole is doomed to failure and perverse, indeed the more ingenious the more perverse. For it seems to him clear that, if our ancestors had known what we know about the universe, Christianity would never have existed at all, and however we patch and mend, no system of thought which claims to be immutable can, in the long run, adjust itself to our growing knowledge. That is the position I am going to try to answer. But before I go on to what I regard as the fundamental answer, I would like to clear up certain points about the actual relations between Christian doctrine and the scientific knowledge we already have. That is a different matter from the continual growth of knowledge we imagine, whether rightly or wrongly, in the future and which, as some think, is bound to defeat us in the end. In one respect, as many Christians have noticed, contemporary science has recently come into line with Christian doctrine, and parted company with the classical forms of materialism. If anything emerges clearly from modern physics, it is that nature is not everlasting. The universe had a beginning, and will have an end. But the great materialistic systems of the past all believed in the eternity, and thence in the self-existence, of matter. As Professor Whitaker said in the Rydell Lectures of 1942, quote, it was never possible to oppose seriously the dogma of the creation except by maintaining that the world has existed from all eternity in more or less its present state. This fundamental ground for materialism has now been withdrawn. We should not lean too heavily on this, for scientific theories change. But at the moment it appears that the burden of proof rests not on us, but on those who deny that nature has some cause beyond herself. In popular thought, however, the origin of the universe has counted, I think, for less than its character, its immense size and its apparent indifference, if not hostility, to human life. And very often this impresses people all the more because it is supposed to be a modern discovery, an excellent example of those things which our ancestors did not know, and which, if they had known them, would have prevented the very beginnings of Christianity. Here there is a simple historical falsehood. Ptolemy knew just as well as Eddington that the earth was infinitesimal in comparison with the whole content of space. There is no question here of knowledge having grown until the frame of archaic thought is no longer able to contain it. The real question is why the spatial insignificance of the earth, after being known for centuries, should suddenly, in the last century, have become an argument against Christianity. I do not know why this has happened, but I am sure it does not mark an increased clarity of thought, for the argument from size is, in my opinion, very feeble. When the doctor at a post-mortem diagnoses poison, pointing to the state of the dead man's organs, his argument is rational because he has a clear idea of that opposite state in which the organs would have been found if no poison were present. In the same way, if we use the vastness of space and the smallness of earth to disprove the existence of God, we ought to have a clear idea of the sort of universe we should expect if God did exist. But have we? Whatever space may be in itself, and of course some moderns think it finite, we certainly perceive it as three-dimensional, and to three-dimensional space we can conceive no boundaries. By the very forms of our perceptions, therefore, we must feel as if we lived somewhere in infinite space. If we discovered no objects in this infinite space except those which are of use to man, our own sun and moon, then this vast emptiness would certainly be used as a strong argument against the existence of God. If we discover other bodies, they must be habitable or uninhabitable. And the odd thing is that both these hypotheses are used as grounds for rejecting Christianity. If the universe is teeming with life, this, we are told, reduces to absurdity the Christian claim, or what is thought to be the Christian claim, that man is unique, 
and the Christian doctrine that to this one planet God came down and was incarnate for us men and for our salvation. If, on the other hand, the earth is really unique, then that proves that life is only an accidental byproduct in the universe, and so again disproves our religion. Really, we are hard to please. We treat God as the police treat a man when he is arrested. Whatever he does will be used in evidence against him. I do not think this is due to our wickedness. I suspect there is something in our very mode of thought which makes it inevitable that we should always be baffled by actual existence, whatever character actual existence may have. Perhaps a finite and contingent creature, a creature that might not have existed, will always find it hard to acquiesce in the brute fact that it is, here and now, attached to an actual order of things. However that may be, it is certain that the whole argument from size rests on the assumption that differences of size ought to coincide with differences of value, for unless they do, there is, of course, no reason why the minute earth and the yet smaller human creatures upon it should not be the most important things in a universe that contains the spiral nebulae. Now is this assumption rational or emotional? I feel, as well as anyone else, the absurdity of supposing that the galaxy could be of less moment in God's eyes than such an atom as a human being. But I notice that I feel no similar absurdity in supposing that a man of five feet high may be more important than another man who is five feet three and a half, nor that a man may matter more than a tree, or a brain more than a leg. In other words, the feeling of absurdity arises only if the differences of size are very great, but where a relation is perceived by reason it holds good universally. If size and value had any real connection, small differences in size would accompany small differences in value, as surely as large differences in size accompany large differences in value. But no sane man could suppose that this is so. I don't think the taller man slightly more valuable than the shorter one. I don't allow a slight superiority to trees over men, and then neglect it because it is too small to bother about. I perceive, as long as I am dealing with the small differences in size, that they have no connection with value whatsoever. I therefore conclude that the importance attached to the great differences of size is an affair not of reason but of emotion, of that peculiar emotion which superiorities in size produce only after a certain point of absolute size has been reached. We are inveterate poets, our imaginations awake. Instead of mere quantity, we now have a quality, the sublime. Unless this were so, the merely arithmetical greatness of the galaxy would be no more impressive than the figures in a telephone directory. It is thus, in a sense, from ourselves that the material universe derives its power to overawe us. To a mind which did not share our emotions and lacked our imaginative energies, the argument from size would be surely meaningless. Men look on the starry heavens with reverence, monkeys do not. The silence of the eternal spaces terrified Pascal, but it was the greatness of Pascal that enabled them to do so. When we are frightened by the greatness of the universe, we are, almost literally, frightened by our own shadows, for these light years and billions of centuries are mere arithmetic until the shadow of man, the poet, the maker of myth, falls upon them. I do not say we are wrong to tremble at his shadow, it is a shadow of an image of God. But if ever the vastness of matter threatens to overcross our spirits, one must remember that it is matter spiritualized which does so. To puny man, the great nebula in Andromeda owes in a sense its greatness. And this drives me to say yet again that we are hard to please. If the world in which we found ourselves were not vast and strange enough to give us Pascal's terror, what poor creatures we should be. Being what we are, rational but also animate, amphibians who start from the world of sense and proceed through myth and metaphor to the world of spirit, I do not see how we could have come to know the greatness of God without that hint furnished by the greatness of the material universe. Once again, what sort of universe do we demand? If it were small enough to be cozy, it would not be big enough to be sublime. If it is large enough for us to stretch our spiritual limbs in, it must be large enough to baffle us. Cramped or terrified, we must in any conceivable world be one or the other. I prefer terror. I should be suffocated in a universe that I could see to the end of. Have you never, when walking in a wood, turned back deliberately for fear you should come out at the other side, and thus make it ever after in your imagination a mere beggarly strip of trees? 
I hope you do not think I am suggesting that God made the spiral nebulae solely or chiefly in order to give me the experience of awe or bewilderment. I have not the faintest idea why he made them. On the whole, I think it would be rather surprising if I had. As far as I understand the matter, Christianity is not wedded to an anthropocentric view of the universe as a whole. The first chapters of Genesis, no doubt, give the story of creation in the form of a folktale, a fact recognized as early as the time of St. Jerome, and if you take them alone you might get that impression. But it is not confirmed by the Bible as a whole. There are few places in literature where we are more sternly warned against making man the measure of all things than in the book of Job. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with an hook? Will he make a covenant with thee? Will thou take him for a servant? Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? In St. Paul the power of the sky seem usually to be hostile to man. It is, of course, the essence of Christianity that God loves man and for his sake became man and died, but that does not prove that man is the sole end of nature. In the parable it was the one lost sheep that the shepherd went in search of. It was not the only sheep in the flock, and we are not told that it was the most valuable, save in so far as the most desperately in need has, while the need lasts, a peculiar value in the eyes of love. The doctrine of the Incarnation would conflict with what we know of this vast universe, only if we knew also that there were other rational species in it who had, like us, fallen, and who needed redemption in the same mode, and that they had not been vouchsafed it. But we know none of these things. It may be full of life that needs no redemption. It may be full of life that has been redeemed. It may be full of things quite other than life which satisfy the divine wisdom in fashions one cannot conceive. We are in no position to draw up maps of God's psychology and prescribe limits to his interests. We would not do so even for a man whom we knew to be greater than ourselves. The doctrines that God is love and that he delights in men are positive doctrines, not limiting doctrines. He is not less than this. What more he may be, we do not know. We know only that he must be more than we can conceive. It is to be expected that his creation should be, in the main, unintelligible to us. Christians themselves have been much to blame for the misunderstanding on these matters. They have a bad habit of talking as if revelation existed to gratify curiosity by illuminating all creation so that it becomes self-explanatory and all questions are answered. But revelation appears to me to be purely practical, to be addressed to the particular animal, fallen man, for the relief of his urgent necessities, not to the spirit of inquiry in man for the gratification of his liberal curiosity. We know that God has visited and redeemed his people, and that tells us just as much about the general character of the creation as a dose given to one sick hen on a big farm tells it about the general character of farming in England. What we must do, which road we must take to the fountain of life, we know, and none who has seriously followed the directions complains that he has been deceived. But whether there are other creatures like ourselves, and how they are dealt with, whether inanimate matter exists only to serve living creatures or for some other reason, whether the immensity of space is a means to some end, or an illusion, or simply the natural mode in which infinite energy might be expected to create, on all these points I think we are left to our own speculations. No, it is not Christianity which need fear the giant universe. It is those systems which place the whole meaning of existence in biological or social evolution on our own planet. It is the naive evolutionist, the Bergsonian or Shevian, or the communist who should tremble when he looks up at the night sky, for he really is committed to a sinking ship. He really is attempting to ignore the discovered nature of things, as though by concentrating on the possibly upward trend in a single planet, he could make himself forget the inevitable downward trend in the universe as a whole, the trend to low temperatures and irrevocable disorganization. For entropy is the real cosmic wave, and evolution only a momentary Tellurian ripple within it. On these grounds, then, I submit that we Christians have little to fear as anyone from the knowledge actually acquired. But, as I said at the beginning, that is not the fundamental answer. The endless fluctuations of scientific theory, which seem today so much friendlier to us than in the last century, may turn against us tomorrow. The basic answer lies elsewhere. Let me remind you of the question we are trying to answer. It is this. How can an unchanging system survive the continual increase of knowledge? Now, in certain cases, we know very well how it can. 
A mature scholar reading a great passage in Plato, and taking in at one glance the metaphysics, the literary beauty, and the place of both in the history of Europe, is in a very different position from a boy learning the Greek alphabet. Yet through that unchanging system of the alphabet, all this vast mental and emotional activity is operating. It has not been broken by the new knowledge, it is not outworn. If it changed, all would be chaos. A great Christian statesman, considering the morality of a measure which will affect millions of lives, and which involves economic, geographical, and political considerations of the utmost complexity, is in a different position from a boy first learning that one must not cheat or tell lies or hurt innocent people. But only in so far as that first knowledge of the great moral platitudes survives unimpaired in the statesman will his deliberation be moral at all. If that goes, then there has been no progress, but only mere change. For change is not progress unless the core remains unchanged. A small oak grows into a big oak. If it became a beech, that would not be growth, but mere change. And thirdly, there is a great difference between counting apples and arriving at the mathematical formulae of modern physics. But the multiplication table is used in both, and does not grow out of date. In other words, wherever there is real progress in knowledge, there is some knowledge that is not superseded. Indeed, the very possibility of progress demands that there should be an unchanging element. New bottles for new wine, by all means, but not new palates, throats, and stomachs, or it would not be, for us, wine at all. I take it we should all agree to find this sort of unchanging element in the simple rules of mathematics. I would add to these the primary principles of morality, and I would also add the fundamental doctrines of Christianity. To put it in rather more technical language, I claim that the positive historical statements made by Christianity have the power, elsewhere found chiefly in formal principles, of receiving, without intrinsic change, the increasing complexity of meaning which increasing knowledge puts into them. For example, it may be true, though I don't for a moment suppose it is, that when the Nicene Creed said, He came down from heaven, the writers had in mind a local movement from a local heaven to the surface of the earth like a parachute descent. Others since may have dismissed the idea of a spatial heaven altogether. But neither the significance nor the credibility of what is asserted seems to be in the least affected by the change. On either view, the thing is miraculous. On either view, the mental images which attend the act of belief are inessential. When a Central African convert and a Harley Street specialist both affirm that Christ rose from the dead, there is, no doubt, a very great difference between their thoughts. To one, the simple picture of a dead body getting up is sufficient. The other may think of a whole series of biochemical and even physical processes beginning to work backwards. The doctor knows that, in his experience, they never have worked backwards, but the Negro knows that dead bodies don't get up and walk. Both are faced with miracle, and both know it. If both think miracle impossible, the only difference is that the doctor will expound the impossibility in much greater detail, will give an elaborate gloss on the simple statement that dead men don't walk about. If both believe, all the doctor says will merely analyze and explicate the words, he rose. When the author of Genesis says that God made man in his own image, he may have pictured a vaguely corporeal God making man as a child makes a figure out of plasticine. A modern Christian philosopher may think of a process lasting from the first creation of matter to the final appearance on this planet of an organism fit to receive spiritual as well as biological life, but both mean essentially the same thing. Both are denying the same thing, the doctrine that matter by some blind power inherent in itself has produced spirituality. Does this mean that Christians on different levels of general education conceal radically different beliefs under an identical form of words? Certainly not. For what they agree on is the substance, and what they differ about is the shadow. When one imagines his God seated in a local heaven above a flat earth, where another sees God and creation in terms of Professor Whitehead's philosophy, this difference touches precisely what does not matter. Perhaps this seems to you an exaggeration, but is it? As regards material reality, we are now being forced to the conclusion that we know nothing about it save its mathematics. The tangible beach and pebbles of our first calculators, the imaginable atoms of Democritus, the plain man's picture of space, turn out to be the shadow. Numbers are the substance of our knowledge, the sole liaison between mind and things. What nature is in herself evades us. 
What seem to naive perception to be the evident things about her turn out to be the most phantasmal. It is something the same with our knowledge of spiritual reality. What God is in himself, how he is to be conceived by philosophers, retreats continually from our knowledge. The elaborate world pictures which accompany religion and which look each so solid while they last turn out to be only shadows. It is religion itself, prayer and sacrament and repentance and adoration, which is here in the long run our sole avenue to the real. Like mathematics, religion can grow from within or decay. The Jew knows more than the pagan, the Christian more than the Jew, the modern, vaguely religious man less than any of the three. But like mathematics, it remains simply itself, capable of being applied to any new theory of the material universe and outmoded by none. When any man comes into the presence of God, he will find, whether he wishes it or not, that all those things which seem to make him so different from the man of other times, or even from his earlier self, have fallen off him. He is back where he always was, where every man always is. Eadem sunt omnia semper, everything is always the same. Do not let us deceive ourselves. No possible complexity which we can give to our picture of the universe can hide us from God. There is no copse, no forest, no jungle thick enough to provide cover. We read in Revelation of him that sat on the throne from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. It may happen to any of us at any moment. In the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to be measured, and in any place, all that seems to divide us from God can flee away, vanish, leaving us naked before him, like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but he and I existed. And since that contact cannot be avoided for long, and since it means either bliss or horror, the business of life is to learn to like it. That is the first and great commandment.